Jake here. Thank you for taking a trip to the past with me. The original podcast version of The Americans will be released weekly, but if you don't want to wait, then go to jakebible.substack.com and become a paid subscriber. You'll receive access to all of The Americans as well as early release novels, audiobooks, and other exclusive extras. That's jakebible.substack.com. Now enjoy the original podcast production of The Americans. Cheers. Warning. This podcast reading is for mature audiences only. You will not be warned again. Welcome to the podcast reading of Jake Bible's The Americans, book two in the Dead Mech Apex Trilogy. The Americans is a sidequel to Dead Mech, meaning it takes place simultaneously with book one. You can listen to this novel first or start with Dead Mech. Go to jakebible.com for more information on this podcast, Dead Mech, and other fiction by Jake Bible. Enjoy. Welcome to the first episode of The Americans. It's good to be back recording a novel. Not just some short stories, but, you know, a full-length novel. And man, I forgot how much work it is. <laughs> really, honestly. It takes a lot to put this stuff together with the intros and the outros and getting the transitions right and going through and listening to the whole thing and then making sure you edit it all, you know, get the flubs out. There's, there's even still probably a couple little little hiccups here and there, um, which brings me into explaining. If you noticed in the intro, this is the podcast reading of The Americans. Now, what I mean by that is instead of putting together a slick, packaged, ready-to-go audiobook, what I'm actually doing is putting together a reading. This is just like any other reading you go to a library, you go to a bookstore, go to, you know, an auditorium, whatever. This this is a reading is what, what you're going to be hearing. And that's pretty much going to be my approach to it from here on out. It doesn't mean when I totally screw up, I'm going to leave in, you know, the bloopers and the flubs. I'm going to edit out the big stuff. But every once in a while, I may stutter. Um, I'm not going to overproduce it. You know, there's, there's a, um, I think, statistic that for a fully produced audiobook it takes about 10 hours of work to get maybe an hour of finished product i don't have that time folks <laughs> i need to be writing and um, i need to be recording and i need to be putting this stuff together and getting it out to you not just you know um, spending 10 hours trying to get one hour done and make it completely perfect because as i've said in in previous podcasts i'm a writer not a podcaster i love doing this but I got to write, folks. That's what I got to do. So anyway, that's what I'm going to be meaning, or that's what I do mean, by podcast reading. Um, as far as I know, it's something a little different. I don't think anyone's really done it. Everyone always approaches it as an audiobook, and I'm not. This is just a recorded reading of me reading the novel to you. And yeah, there's a little extra. It's a little more than if I was just in a library or a bookstore. But anyway... Um, let's see, what else we got going on? Hey, you know what? Um, Scott Roche has got, um, something pretty cool. He's got a short story, Power in the Blood, over at Smashwords. I had mentioned it, um, in the last, uh, Infocast. 
Um, but if you go over to Smashwords and look up Power in the Blood or Scott Roche, you can put in the code VH78X and get that for free. So um, that's that's pretty groovy. You should go check that out. Definitely do that. All right. What else do we have going on? Hey, really cool announcement. Um, I have an agent. I am now being represented um, by Adrian Rosado of PMA, Literary and Film Management. That's pretty cool. Um, mainly this started out to represent my young adult novel, Little Dead Man, um, which is um, a young adult zombie novel. And it's it's pretty cool. It's It's got a whole new twist on things. Uh, basically, it's, a, it's about um, two conjoined twins, uh, Garrett and Garth Weir. Uh, Garrett's alive, Garth is not. Um, they were born conjoined, and, um, well, obviously, because you can't really be conjoined afterwards, but um, when they were born, uh, Garrett was alive, Garth was not, he was a zombie, and um, Garrett has grown up now, a 16-year-old strapping lad, with his undead, still infant-sized twin brother attached to his spine. Yeah. That's good stuff, people. You gotta love that. So anyway, Little Dead Man, that's my YA novel. Um, and that's why I got some representation. So there'll be more news on that down the line. Uh, what else? Hey, you know, Paul E. Cooley. You know that guy? He's crazy. Crazy. Um, he's got his Fiends collection, The Print Book. And I believe it's going to be a special limited edition uh, coming out for pre-sale on Monday, Valentine's Day. February 14th. So why don't you head over to shadowpublications.com and check that out because, um, you know, that's that's going to be pretty important. That's going to be pretty cool. Some um, independent publishing going on here. And, you know, if you've seen any of my blogs, if you've, um, you know, listened to me lately, I'm really starting to go that direction too. But we shall see, you know, exactly how it all works out, because I do have an agent now also. So this could be a very interesting hybrid career that I will have. Uh, but yeah, definitely go to shadowpublications.com. Check out Paul E. Cooley's pre-sale that is going on on Valentine's Day. Um, let's see, what else? You know what? One thing I did promise everything I would do, promise everything, well, everything, everyone and everything, because, you know, I don't want to be classist and leave out, you know, orcs and elves and leprechauns and, you know, whatever else might be out there. Um, I promised I would announce the, um, well, the winners of the Dead Mech contest. Do you remember that? <laughs> Way back when I had a contest for everyone who ordered signed and, um, personalized copies of Dead Mech directly from me. I said I was going to be picking four names from the U.S. Um, and one name from international uh, people who ordered. And these guys get to have their names used in the next um, Dead Mech novel, which, um, as you know now, is actually going to be the third one, because uh, I already had the Americans written. Ha ha ha, I'm tricky that way. So in the very third one, Metal and Ash, the one that brings Dead Mech and the Americans together, that is going to have some of these folks' names, such as Jonathan Moss, Carrie Maisel, Andrew Morris, Randy Watts, and Stephen LaFrance. I love those names. And I honestly, I picked these out of a hat. I literally put my hat down with shredded up paper that had names written on there. And I picked it out. And boom, they're great names. I, I love it. Uh, I mean, Jonathan Moss, cool. Carrie Maisel. Excellent. 
Andrew Morris. I, I can see that. You know, I could see a character named Drew Morris. That would be kind of cool. Randy Watts. Hey, Watts. And then Stephen LaFrance. This is going to work out perfectly with the last name LaFrance um, because I am going to have Canadians in the um, third Dead Mech um, book. The Canadians are actually going to have a very huge part of how things tie together and wrap up. So all you Canadians out there can give a woo, yeah, Canadian power, because um, you, you play a huge part in this whole thing. You had no clue, did you? Anyway, all right, so there's that. Last but not least, well, not quite last but not least, um, Kindle Rush, folks, Dead Mech. On March 1st, put it on your calendar, you're going to be going to Amazon.com and you are going to be purchasing the $3.99 Kindle version of Dead Mech. $3.99, people. That's paperback. Little itty bitty. Mass market paperback price. $3.99. You're going to get 136,000 word novel for $3.99 and we're going to rush those charts so on March 1st March 1st that's a Tuesday Tuesday March 1st put it on your calendar and the second you have a chance buy that puppy we're going to have as many people buying that we're going to push it up the charts we're going to get people noticing I want Amazon to go hey what's up with this dead mech stuff here what is going on with that and you're going to say well I'll tell you what it's awesome that's what's going on with it. It's awesome. That's why we're buying it. So spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your family. If you want to buy one for your friend, buy one for your family. Buy several. Go crazy. Get wild with these copies. It's only $3.99, people, for the Kindle. An ebook, Isn't it excellent? And I, pers I marked no DRM. So when I uploaded that puppy, I said no DRM. Um, digital rights management. So you should be able to share it with your other devices. Now, I don't know exactly how that works, but hey, that's my intention. So anyway, March 1st, the Kindle Dead Mech Rush, and I have a ton of people and podcasters and bloggers and writers and everybody who've been helping spread the word. So if you notice that they're spreading the word out there, show them some love. Do it. You know, check out their podcast, check out their writing, buy their books. Let's let's spread it around, people. Spread the dead mech cannibal love. Zombie goodness. Yes, that's what you want to do. And um, speaking of spreading the love, I've got some promos at the end here. Um, hey, you know, check them out. Listen, because like I said, I've got a lot of people helping me out. So when this show is all over, you're going to hear three promos. Listen through. Listen to them. And hey, go check out the podcast, go check out the novels, go check out whatever they're pimping. Because if they're pimping, it's worth it. And if I'm putting it on here, it's worth it. They help me, I help them, we help each other. You get to just feel that love, bask in the glory of folks helping each other. Yes, I'm holding my own hands right now. I feel love! Anyway, enough of my stupid rambling here. Let's get into the first episode of The Americans. This is going to be the prologue and chapter one. And I think you're going to like it. It's going to introduce a few characters, introduce some new concepts, and probably leave you um, a little puzzled going, what the hell is going on? Trust me, you'll find out and it's going to blow you all away. All right. Thanks as always, everybody. You all rock. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, March 1st, Dead Mech Kindle Rush. Let's push that puppy up the Amazon, Amazon, Amazon Kindle charts. All right. Thanks.
Cheers, y'all. Prologue The League of Monarchs were not pleased with the director, and their holographic images showed it plainly. As I have said, your highnesses, the three have assured me that everything will be in place soon, Mr. Gein placated. A small middle-aged man, pudgy about the waist and neck, and director of the League of Monarchy Security Division, LOMSD, Mr. Gein stood before the hollow projections of all the reigning monarchs of Europe, trying not to sweat through his suit coat. But you have been saying that for weeks, Emperor Ronaldo Garaldi of the Holy Roman Empire insisted. We are tired of the delays. Yes, Mr. Gein, Empress Natalia Tartaroff added. When you first approached us with the Three's proposal to remove the Americans from power and free the LOM and all of Europe from their oversight and martial authority, you promised us this would be a speedy process with little to no effort on our part. Mr. Gein held up his hands. I understand your frustration, but this is happening quite fast for the enormity of the task, he placated again. It must be done correctly or we will not get a second chance and the LOM will be left open for American takeover under the Articles of Sanctuary. The monarchs grumbled and complained, but none offered any other solutions or withdrew their support. Please, my lords and ladies, it will not be long before everything is set in motion. You can expect results within the week. We had better, growled Queen Costancia de Rivera of Spain. Remember, Senor Gain, that it is your neck that is on the chopping block, not the threes if this all falls through. The bureaucrat gulped and tried to smile, but it just made him look pain-stricken. I understand, your highness, and I have always taken that into account. Thank you. The monarchs conferred with each other briefly and one by one signed off, their holographic images fading from the con conference room. When he was finally alone, Mr. Gein stepped to the sideboard and poured himself a generous amount of gin. He downed the drink and quickly refilled. He activated his calm. Get me Mr. Continental right now. He didn't wait for a response, downing and refilling his tumbler yet again. He took a seat at the conference table and loosened his tie. This had better work, or the Americans will own us all. It'll work, Gein, a woman said from the shadows. The director jumped, spilling some of his gin. Jesus, Isley, how long have you been lurking there? The woman laughed. Since before your hollow meeting began, you really should look in the corners when you enter a room. Yes, well, I was never very good at field work. I leave the security to folks like you. Folks like me? Mr. Gein, we've known each other for a very long time, and you still don't trust me. On the contrary, dear, Mr. Gein answered, fixing Miss Isley a gin also. I trust you completely. You just scare the shit out of me, is all. Miss Isley took the offered glass and nodded her thanks. Scare the shit out of you. I'll take that as a compliment. Please do, Mr. Gein raised his glass. To a brave new world. Cheers, Miss Isley responded, clinking her glass against his before downing the gin. Let us hope the three know what they're doing. Chapter 1 while the surface records were very authentic, upon further investigation it appears that there is no true record of your existence, Miss Kramer, the warden said, his eyes focused on Heather Walton. I'm guessing Kramer isn't your real name. Heather looked about the room, not a bit of biochrome in sight. She reached out, trying to feel any she might not have seen, but her body wasn't responding, at least not to any external stimulation. They know, she thought. 
Time to go to work. You did an excellent job of getting yourself thrown in here without attracting too much attention. The warden's fist was strong and swift, and Heather's head rocked back. But we're used to dealing with people like you. We've had the training. Yep, they know. You'll find there isn't a scrap of B.C. on this entire level. Even your shackles are made of good old-fashioned iron. Struggle as you like, you're in that chair until I say different, the warden grinned, his tea-stained teeth barely visible in the gloomy light of the cell. Heather spit blood onto the floor and smiled, matching the warden. Something funny? the warden asked, looking back at the four guards standing behind him, all extremely muscular and only wearing a basic uniform, unadorned with any B.C. They were prepared for Heather's B.C. manipulative skills. They aren't laughing, so I guess not. As far as you know, ghosts don't exist, Heather laughed. You know that, right? And you've never had one in this facility before. I know that for a fact. I thought you just said ghosts don't exist, the warden smirked. How can you know we've never had one in here if they don't exist? Because you're still alive, Heather glared. You really need to scan better. Scan better? I believe our security is more than adequate. The warden shook his head and motioned for a guard to step forward. The large man closed on Heather, his eyes glinting with violence. Before he could throw the first punch, Heather started to retch, her to torso convulsing as if she would suddenly vomit. The guard stepped back and looked to the warden. I didn't touch her. I can see that, the warden shouted. Is she choking? Check her! The guard stepped forward again and grabbed Heather by the jaw, twisting her head back and forth. What you got in there? Spit it out! Heather's retching stopped immediately. Obvious she had thrown something up into her mouth. The guard reached out and started to pry Heather's mouth apart. No, wait, the warden ordered, but it was too late. A thin microfilament of biochrome shot from between Heather's lips, piercing the guard's left eye, shooting out the back of his head. A second microfilament worked its way down her face, shoulder, arm, and began to work at the shackle on her right wrist. Kill her now, the warden yelled to the remaining guards, and they lunged for Heather. The microfilament in the dead guard's skull retracted and Heather turned her attention on the other muscled men. She spat quickly and the lead guard fell, his chest pierced by B.C. Heather retracted again and repeated the motion on the next guard. The last guard was on her before she could spit again, but the shackle on her wrist clicked free and she had him about the throat, crushing his windpipe instantly. The warden lunged for the cell door, his hand reaching for the simple alarm switch in the tech-free cell, but was tripped up by the line of biochrome now held in Heather's right hand. No. Please stay. We have work to do, Heather snarled as the shackles on her other wrist and ankles fell away. Two fists to the warden's face and he was stunned quickly. Heather patted the man down and smiled when she felt the comforting presence of B.C. Hip replacement? Did you think I wouldn't notice that? The warden's screams never made it past his throat as Heather slammed her elbow down onto his Adam's apple. His eyes were filled with terror and pain as she formed the B.C. microfilament into a scalpel and began slicing. The teenagers filed into the classroom, their voices raised in heated discussions about the latest music, hollows, and weekend social events. Settle down, all of you, Miss Tinsdale barked from her desk. You may chat after class. The boys and girls all frowned, and the voices gradually lessened to whispers as they took their seats. Miss Tinsdale stood up and began making notations on the data board once everyone was seated. The class waited patiently for her to finish, none of them pleased with the words that lit up on the board.
Heather tossed the warden's severed hand and plucked eyeballs aside, no longer needing them to bypass the security, and ducked under the oncoming guard's swing. She brought her fist up and the BC shot out, wrapping around the man's neck, and she rolled her shoulder, tossing him over her back and onto the corridor's floor. The guard's neck snapped easily, the sound echoing off the corridor's walls. Heather had the dead man's biochrome baton in her hand and swinging before the second guard could register what was happening. His face caved in from the impact and Heather instinctively ducked, letting most of the blood spray over her shoulder. Heather didn't like blood. Grabbing the second guard's baton as well, Heather shoved through the corridor's security door before it could close, the biometric alarms locking things down as soon as the guard's pulse no longer registered in that level's security system. They go to all the trouble of having a BC-free level and then screw it all up by letting monkeys carry BC batons up here, she muttered to herself as seven more guards rushed towards her from down the hall, covering the ten meters between them and her quickly, their batons ready. Bureaucratic amateurs. On either side, inmates cheered, not caring who won the fight, just glad for anything to break up the monotony of incarceration. As Heather bounced from wall to her feet, springing off, propelling her quickly back and forth, confusing the guards. The batons that Heather held in each hand began to melt and meld with the rest, the BC changing at her will, each baton taking the form of a Beretta M9. Without hesitation, she lifted the pistols and began to fire. The guards whose chests weren't ripped open by the armor-piercing slugs dropped to the floor, screaming into their comms for backup. They were able to sound the alarms and warn the other guards for only two seconds, the time it took Heather to close the distance and end their lives brutally. Without losing stride, she snatched up more batons, incorporating their mass with the Berettas, the BC melting instantly, then re reassembling in the shape of two TG-12 sawed-off auto shotguns. She hit the corner and dropped, sliding across the floor to the far wall, aiming one shotgun left and one right, firing three rounds each. More guards fell. Back on her feet, she went over the map of the facility she had memorized, trying to place where she was and where she needed to go. In milliseconds, she had her destination and set off full speed towards her goal. Miss Tinsdale stood up from her desk and crossed to the data board. The 15 students seated before her watched as she pointed to the words, League Day, Origins and Explanations. There was an audible groan from the class. Now, now, settle down, Miss Tinsdale said, waving away the comp complaints. You knew this was coming. We all have to be ready for the celebration in three days. Loudon Secondary will be, and we have lost to them the past six league days. And Mistress Ellis has expressed that she shall be quite disappointed if it becomes seven years in a row, and Gramercy Secondary is the laughingstock of all the London preparatory schools once again. She turned from the data board and surveyed the class, settling her eyes on a 16-year-old boy busily chatting with a 16-year-old girl seated next to him at the back of the classroom. Russell, can you tell the class why we celebrate League Day? Russell winked at the girl and twisted in his seat, bringing his attention to bear on Miss Tinsdale. He flashed his already legendary smile and brushed a lock of his blonde hair out of his eyes. Well, Miss Tinsdale, Russell began, so we can sell fireworks and cook big steaks over flames, of course. Other than that, there really isn't any point, is there? Except to make the Americans feel like they're welcome. Many in the class snickered at the last comment. Mr. Stone, an average man of average build, the type passed by every day and thought nothing of, held the teaspoon over the gas burner, watching the metal turn from perfectly polished to soot black to red hot. Stone walked from the gas range, stepping over a man's brutally beaten corpse, and stood directly in front of a woman and her three teenage children, two boys and a girl, bound to kitchen chairs, and all just as brutalized as the dead man. 
but lucky enough to still be breathing. The permanence of that luck none of them had illusions about. Mr. Stone paced back and forth for a bit, then stopped in front of one of the teenagers, a boy sporting a nasty gash to his left cheek, his hair sticking to his sweaty, damp forehead. Now, you, Mr. Stone said, pointing the still-glowing spoon at the boy. You are a registered tech, also, like your father is. Well, was. Correct? Say nothing, Alan, the woman croaked through split lips and broken teeth. We are all dead anyway. Alan, I advise against listening to your mum, Mr. Stone said. I don't want to hurt you or any of your family, well, any more than I have. But, you see, we have confirmed that certain data was passed through here only a few days ago. It was delivered to someone, yet all the building security hollows are blank. I need to know what that data was and who it was delivered to. He grabbed Alan by the chin, forcing the boy to look at him. If you don't tell me willingly, then one of your siblings will have to help me coax it out of you. The young girl, maybe fourteen, let her head drop to her chest and choked back sobs. Ah, a volunteer, Stone smiled, grabbing the girl by the back of her head and straddling her lap. The girl jerked her head but didn't have the strength anymore to resist Stone. Must have been such a pretty face before Reginald did this to you. What? What you need? A high-pitched man's voice called from the living room. You need me, Stone? Stone smiled and rolled his eyes comically, making a show of it for his captive audience. No, Reggie, just making a point. The point, Mr. Shea, Miss Tinsdale said, is so we always remember how quickly civilization fell apart and was nearly lost before the League of Monarchies was formed and the Americans were tasked with keeping the peace. Fucking jacks? A student muttered. Nervous laughter followed, but stopped as Miss Tinsdale's gaze hunted for the culprit. I have said before I will have none of that bigotry in my classroom, Miss Tinsdale scolded. Regardless of your political or religious beliefs, the Americans have kept the peace in Europe for over 300 years despite not having a home of their own. They deserve our respect and our gratitude. How would you feel if while you were away at classes your home was destroyed, burned from the earth? It would not feel so good, would it? Well, the Americans have no home except for what they are allowed in the Articles of Sanctuary, and we should pity them for that. She could sense the shock troops before they even turned the corner, their B.C. singing to her. Heather came to a sliding halt and double-pumped her legs back the way she had come, hoping she could get some distance between herself and the troops. Got her! A metallic voice rang through the hall, and Heather dove to the ground as the first wave of bullets flew over her. Her momentum keeping her moving, Heather twisted onto her back and took aim, morphing the simple auto shotguns into an RPG and letting it fly. It took all the BC mass and she was left empty-handed, but the destruction of the three shock troops was worth it. Heather was back on her feet and sprinting through the smoldering armor before the explosion had stopped ringing in her ears. Melissa, maybe you can help Mr. Shea explain League Day, Miss Tinsdale asked. Of course, Miss Tinsdale, I would be happy to. Melissa Brenton answered, getting from her seat and stepping to the front of the class. Y you can stay seated, Miss Brenton, Miss Tinsdale said, slightly annoyed. Oh, I don't mind, Miss Tinsdale, Melissa said. League day is so very important, I would hate it if the entire class couldn't hear me. Most of the students rolled their eyes as Melissa straightened her skirt and smoothed her blouse. League Day is the official celebration of the signing of the armistice that ended the Brimstone Wars and created the League of Monarchies across the Europe.
In addition, it is the day the Americans became Europe's official peacekeepers, ensuring that each monarchy could rule without conflict and the citizens of Europe could be satisfied that no kingdom had military dominance over its people or over another kingdom. This has been assured in the Articles of Sanctuary. In exchange for this status and for the sanctuary the Articles allow, the Americans shared much of their technology with us, especially biochrome, the result of their pioneering work in the field of genetic metallurgy. You know, doing this really doesn't make me happy, Mr. Stone said, bringing the red-hot spoon to the girl's eye. Well, maybe a little. He plunged the spoon into the side of the socket and twisted. The sizzle of burning flesh was heard for a split second before the kitchen was filled with the girl's screams. The woman and two boys thrashed in their seats, flinging obscenities at Stone. You jacks always have had such a rich history of salty language. Maybe that will be your legacy after you are all finally wiped from the planet. Stone pulled the spoon from the now still girl's eye socket, and the eyeball came away with a slight wet pop. He picked the eye from the spoon, some of the flesh sticking to the still hot metal, and tossed it up and down in his palm. Such a waste. No, Anthony, the answer is not they're a bunch of wankers, Melissa snapped, struggling to get her anger under control. The classroom burst out laughing, and Miss Tinsdale stood up, clapping her hands loudly to get the class's attention. You will take this seriously, or this will become an overnight assignment, she barked. A five-page assignment, am I clear? Yes, Miss Tinsdale, the class answered in unison. Melissa stood at the front of the class, her cheeks flushed and chest puffed out. Miss Tinsdale took her by the shoulder and guided her back to her seat next to Anthony's. Thank you, Miss Brenton. She strode back to the data screen and tapped at the corner, erasing the words written earlier. A small blue dot began to pulse, and Miss Tinsdale tapped at it. Okay, since this is proving to be such a chore for you all, I'm going to make this fun. Down the middle, right side team A, left side team B. I ask the question, first team to answer gets a point. Team with the most points gets out of take-home for the rest of the week. Ready? First question. Melissa casually leaned over and placed her hand on Anthony's crotch. He looked at her, surprised, and she smiled. Then she squeezed. Hard. He started to cry out, but she squeezed more and put her fingers to her lips. Ever embarrass me like that again, and I'll take these from you. Batter and deep fry them, and feed them to you bit by bit. Understood? Anthony nodded quickly, tears in his eyes. Melissa let go of his crotch and gave it a friendly pat. Nice equipment, though. I am impressed. It wasn't that it was too easy, which it wasn't. It was just that Heather was succeeding at a faster pace than even she could have imagined. She wondered if she wasn't being set up, but considering what she was after, she highly doubted it. Maybe she was getting lucky. Maybe she was just that good. All these thoughts ran through her mind as she ducked her head, feeling the bullets getting closer and closer to the back of her skull, what she wouldn't give for a hunk of biochrome right then. But the LOMSD was too careful, making sure their holding facility was built of good old standard wooden plaster, probably built around a dirty steel frame, but no BC except for the weapons and the armor the guards wore. This ensured that the building couldn't be taken down by ghosts, which the Americans never confirmed existed. But the LOMSD knew were a part of their military structure. Of course, the LOMSD had too little intel on the ghost's actual abilities, hence the mistake of even allowing the guards on this level to carry BC. Amateurs, she muttered to herself again. Heather dashed around the corner and came to a full stop. 
Seven shock troops stood before her, their shiny body armor reflecting and warping her image. Behind them were at least two dozen armed guards, riot guns and batons at the ready, should she get past the shock troops. Well, she had the BC she wished for. All she had to do was take it and survive. I'm running out of patience, Alan, Mr. Stone bellowed, tossing the girl's right ear onto the floor after reheating the spoon and burning it from her head. I need to know who you gave the data to. Tell me, you fucking jack abomination. He leaned in close to the mutilated girl. They don't really love you, he whispered before reaching out and snapping her neck. The woman screamed and Stone lunged at her, his left hand gripping her throat until all that came out of her mouth were weak choking noises. Her eyes bulged in her head and she tried to struggle, but it was already too late. Her face turned a deep red, then purple, and finally, slowly, she stopped struggling and became still. The two boys glared at Stone as he withdrew his hand and flexed his fingers. Don't know my own strength sometimes, Stone muttered. He looked from the dead woman to the boys and shrugged. What you gonna do? Alan and his brother sat there, adolescent fury burning behind their eyes. Stone flipped open a knife and cut the woman loose, knocking her body to the ground, grabbing her chair and turning it about so he could face both boys while sitting, his arms folded across the back of the chair. Boys, 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 you hate me. I get that. Hell, I'd hate me if I wasn't me. But I am, so I don't, Stone said, the knife still in his hand. I know brothers talk. Tell each other things. So one of you is going to tell me what I want to know, or I will slice your peach fuzz scrotums open and let your wet, exposed balls dangle free. Then I'll take my knife and very carefully shave a slice off of each nut until there's nothing left. Who's first? I haven't had a data assignment in months, Alan yelled. There's nothing to tell. Ooh, that's disappointing, Mr. Stone grinned. For me and for you. What was the official date the Brimstone Wars started and which nation or religion struck first, Miss Tinsdale called out. January 3rd, 2173, a boy cried out from the left side. Israel, a girl yelled from the right. The class looked to the board and a hash mark appeared in the right and left side's columns. Tie, Miss Tinsdale said. Next question. What year did the Indian Hindu Army launch a full-scale nuclear offensive against the Pakistani Islamic Brigade? 2178, 2179, 2180. None. The Pakistani Islamic Brigade launched the first strike. India was only able to retaliate because they had twice as many nukes, giving the popular misconception that India launched the strike simply because they were able to finish it, Melissa cried, leaping from her seat. A couple of the other girls snickered, but Melissa ignored them. A hash mark was added to the right side's tally. Well done, Melissa, Miss Tinsdale praised. Bonus question. When did the Anglican Church officially enter the Brimstone Wars and why? No fair. Why does she get a bonus question? The pug-faced boy yelled. Because she's the most annoying. That's enough, Mr. York, Miss Tinsdale scolded. Melissa, do you know the answer? Archbishop Ashton declared war in, um... 2175? Yes, 2175, after Pope Alexander decreed that all Christian sects not beholden to the Catholic Church would be judged as heretical and enemies of God, Melissa answered. The class once again watched the board, and two more hash marks were logged into the right side's tally. Two points! Boo! Several students hollered. As the bullets came at Heather, time seemed to slow. 
She knew what she had to do, but fuck if it wasn't going to hurt. Heather positioned her body and braced herself for the impacts. The bullets, all made of B.C., ripped through her flesh, tearing into muscle and sinew. Heather writhed like a belly dancer, shifting and adjusting her body so the bullets wouldn't hit bone or vital organs. When she knew she had enough, she succumbed to the force and let her body collapse onto the ground, blood streaming from the wounds. Heather shivered at the amount of blood and cringed, knowing it would be a while before she could wash it off. She immediately set to work controlling the B.C., hoping she could form it into what she needed before shock set in, or she bled to death. Mr. Stone slammed the mine spike into Alan's forehead. The boy tried not to scream, tried to be as strong as his brother had been while Stone carved him up, but the pain was too intense. Alan just couldn't take it and reared his head back, letting loose with an ear-splitting scream. Jesus, Mr. Stone exclaimed, I haven't even turned it on. With that said, Mr. Stone tapped at his wrist display and the mind spike activated. Alan's scream was cut off and his mouth opened and closed, his lips smacking like a fish gasping for breath. Stone watched the display, but nothing came up. Fuck, he's empty. Stone slashed Alan's throat, quickly stepping out of the way of the arterial spray, trying not to trip over the body of the other boy or slip in the blood pooled about him. Fucking hell, he screamed. I fucking hate Americans. Goddamn Jacks and their motherfucking conditioning. Fuck! Stone watched the life leave Alan's eyes and kicked out, knocking the teenager on top of his brother's corpse. Fuck! Hey, Stone! Reginald called from the living room. Fucking what, Reggie? Stone yelled. Reginald, a tall, gaunt man, walked into the kitchen with a hollow disc in his hands. He glanced casually at the bodies, not really giving them any thought. Found this. He tossed the hollow disc to Stone. Think it may be what we are looking for. Stone tapped the disc and a small holographic image of Alan talking with a girl came to life. What is this? Teen chat? No, just watch, Reginald said, his eyes twinkling with anticipation. It's this morning. He yanked it from the Jack's personal security. They had the console hidden behind a painting of dogs. How stupid do they think we are? Stone stared at the two teenagers until he thought his patience would finally run out. He scrunched up his face, ready to lay into Reginald when the boy and girl embraced, and they both shook violently, close to seizure. After a minute, the two pushed away from each other, embarrassed and confused, and the girl dashed from the hollow. The image flickered and went away. Stone smiled. That's interesting. Did that look like a data transfer to you, Reginald? Not any data transfer I have ever seen, Mr. Stone, Reginald answered. True. But it does fit the profile for data transfer to a vessel. How fucked up would that be if we actually come across a living, breathing vessel? Well, Mr. Stone, considering how hard this assignment has been, I'd say that would make sense, Reginald answered. How exciting! A mythical vessel! I wonder if they bleed the same. We may well find out, Mr. Stone smiled. Hell, Alan may not have even known. Poor kid. Ah... Teenage hormones, always a compass for trouble. Last question, Miss Tinsdale announced. It's a tie, so this is for the win. She looked around the room, trying to build the anticipation. She mostly found bored faces, ready for the school day to be done. She sighed and continued. It is widely held that the Americans' neutral involvement in the Brimstone Wars is what finally brought the worldwide conflict to an end. However, many economists believe that the Americans' introduction of biochrome was even more influential. What made B.C. so important to bringing peace and stability? 
Half the class was no longer paying attention. Miss Tinsdale waited for an answer, her face showing her growing impatience. Miss Laughlin, you haven't participated at all this day. Why do you think B.C. was so influential? The class watched Beth Laughlin as she looked up from the book she was reading, sunlight from the windows playing across her face, the face of the girl in Allen's Hollow. Her clothes were out of date and she looked like she could use a good makeover. Some of the others giggled at the puzzled look on her face. I'm, I'm sorry, Miss Tinsdale. What was the question? Miss Tinsdale sighed. Never mind, Miss Laughlin. Go back to your book. Let us know when you want to participate. Beth shrunk into herself, trying to disappear from the class. Melissa looked at her and mouthed the word, freak. Beth frowned and brought her book up to cover her face. Some of the kids laughed cruelly. Okay, class, that's enough. Leave Miss Laughlin be. been listening to the podcast reading of Jake Bible's The Americans. This novel and recording are protected under whatever latest, greatest Creative Commons license is out there currently. Share this all you want. Just don't even try to make a buck off it without the express permission of the author, me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please go to jakebible.com. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the re-release of the original podcast production of The Americans. Don't want to wait each week for a new episode? Go to jakebible.substack.com and become a paid subscriber. Want more audiobooks? Go to jakebible.com for info and access to dozens of Jake Bible fiction audiobooks and ebooks. Cheers.